Welcome to Twin Peaks Cinema. This episode covers the connections between Mulholland Drive and Twin Peaks. So obviously here we're kicking off something new for this series where we've mostly looked at films that have no explicit relation to Twin Peaks and discover their connections. In this case, we're looking at films by David Lynch, who of course is one of the co-creators of Twin Peaks. And we're starting with one that I think might be maybe the most compared to Twin Peaks, other than obviously Fire Walk With Me, which is a Twin Peaks prequel. And uh, in this case, interestingly, you know, this was created for TV and became a film, so it's got that connection. It has other uh, connections that people have drawn. So I'm going to share a fairly long discussion, longer for this podcast than usual, about uh, 37 minutes or so, 35 minutes. And then I've got some really long feedback as well, which is great, which I engage with. Uh, talking about these ideas about what Mulholland Drive might be uh, talking about in a way that relates to Twin Peaks. Uh, This was one of the earliest, well, this was actually the earliest Twin Peaks cinema episode I recorded because I recorded it for patrons five years ago when I was starting my Patreon podcast. And uh, it actually wasn't even called Twin Peaks Cinema at that time. I was just talking about films, but I had a patron who specifically requested, could you compare Mulholland Drive to Twin Peaks? So I said, sure, why not? And then a year and a half later, I made it into more of a series, which I've been releasing publicly on this feed. So I hope you enjoy listening to this. Uh, Before we get to that, just a quick update on what I've been up to on my other podcasts and uh, one other project as well. I released the Lost in the Movies episode for January on Marie Antoinette, the Sofia Coppola 2006 film, which complements the uh, Golden Age Hollywood 30s film that I discussed last month on that podcast. I also put out a a Patreon episode for Christmas, also continuing my decades theme in this particular episode. It was just the, the 60s. That was The Apartment, the Billy Wilder comedy, great film with a Christmas and New Year's theme. And then also uh, did some capsules on How the Grinch Stole Christmas, Rudolph Red-Nosed Reindeer, and a Charlie Brown Christmas. Three uh, 60s Christmas animated specials about misfits. So uh, interesting connection there. I did an archive reading from the 2000s of uh, Christmas Tale, French film about Christmas. And then uh, also included in that episode, Andrew Cook's Further Reflections on 300 and Zero Cinema. He was a guest on the previous episode of that and my plans for the three big Twin Peaks projects, feedback, media, work updates, and more. So you can check that out by becoming a patron on patreon.com slash lost in the movies. And in addition to the podcast, usually I just on Twin, you know, on my lost in the movies episodes, I go through everything I've been up to in the past month on this podcast. I try to keep it just limited to the other podcasts, but there is one other project I should mention because it's one of the biggest I've ever done in my uh, site's history on lostinthemovies.com. This is the Twin Peaks character series. Uh, I ran uh, studies on All the characters ranked by screen time before the third season came out in 2017. And now I've finally updated. I've spent years tinkering with this and getting distracted by other things. But uh, at this point, it's it's running. I've got it filled up through at least early April. Uh, If I have to pause it at some point because I fall behind on the backlog, I will. But I've got many entries written ahead of time. And right now we're looking at minor characters and bonus characters, meaning characters that I covered for the original uh, series Uh, because I had a different criterion. Uh, At that point, I was covering characters who had dialogue in three scenes. Now I'm doing characters who have 10 minutes or more of screen time. So it sort of leaves these uh, more minor characters out. But since I already wrote entries for them, I am resharing those and updating them if those characters appear in the third season or in Mark Frost's book. So you can check that out uh, next week. It's going to begin in earnest, the countdown 
of the characters with 10 minutes or more of screen time. There's 86 of them, uh, including groups of characters and pairs. If characters appear, you know, pretty much in tandem or part of some group like the spirits of Twin Peaks, for example. So lots to look forward to there. Definitely check it out. And if you're a patron for $5 a month, you actually get to preview these a month ahead of time. At this point, we're actually already two months ahead of time. Uh, eventually it'll be, you know, more of just a straight up month, but you can look now all the way up to uh, number 52 on Patreon. So check all that out if you're a Twin Peaks fan. Obviously, if you're listening to this episode, you are because we're going to get way into the weeds of Twin Peaks and Mulholland Drive. So let's get started on that. Silencio. I remember something. What is it, Rita? What is it? What do you see? Mulholland Drive. Mulholland Drive? That's where I was going. So to start with, a lot of people know that the first real mentions of Mulholland Drive were actually with Lynch and Frost uh, in Twin Peaks. And the character that they were thinking of centering in a show called Mulholland Drive was Audrey Horn. This was something that Sherilyn Fenn had heard about at the time and she's talked about since this idea of this image of Audrey Horn with her scarf blowing in the wind in a open convertible driving down Mulholland Drive in the sun and starting her career in Hollywood because she's fled Twin Peaks. They thought maybe this would be an interesting spinoff. And, you know, as you can remember at this time, and actually today they're doing it with Blackish right now, there was a trend of these uh, shows that would spin off from other shows and often become hits, you know, sometimes just as big or bigger or whatever. But point being, they thought that would be interesting with Twin Peaks. And I think they even kind of hoped to do something with Lucy too. And needless to say, that never came to pass. The Twin Peaks bubble burst pretty quickly. So... I don't know at what point they were humoring the idea of a Hollywood Audrey spinoff, but I would imagine it was probably like between the summers of season one and season two, and that quickly fell by the wayside. There's a great New Yorker history of Mulholland Drive that was written at the time before it even became a movie because it was initially a TV show, and I'll link that in the description on the uh, Patreon blog post. Around the late 90s, um, ABC actually reached out to Lynch and wanted to have him come back and do another show. There was another management shakeup, I think. I guess they'd forgotten how much trouble they had with Twin Peaks at the time and thought, well, wouldn't it be cool to have Lynch come on and be a part of us, of, of ABC again? So for whatever reason, he agreed to do it. And it's worth mentioning, too, that on the air was a Lynch-Frost show that actually came after Twin Peaks. So they'd actually had another ABC show that flopped. This one only lasted, I think, two or three episodes in 1992 so really it's surprising he would go back to abc for a third dip into the pool but he did and uh, he wrote a script with um, another author her name is joyce eleison curiously she does not receive credit in the film um, she's barely ever discussed the only time i ever see her name brought up is in articles from like before the show was made. So it seems like she was kind of on board for maybe some early discussions or a draft or something and then left. And she is still a producer on the film, apparently. But I'm really not that sure about what her role on that was. And I'd love to find out more. Uh, because ultimately, Lynch receives the sole credit for Mulholland Drive. It's one of the few films where he actually is listed as the sole writer. What's being set up here is an ongoing ensemble show. Unsurprisingly, ABC did not go for the pilot that Lynch shot. They made him shorten it a lot, which really upset him. And in, in years since then, he's really pushed people away from seeing the pilot and even considering it as part of the movie. He just sees it as sort of a false start that ended up leading to what the film was supposed to be, which is a feature film 
with new material uh, attached to the end. Another interesting thing about the, the production process for that, and this is something that uh, connects us right away to Twin Peaks, is he shot a closed ending for the, the Mulholland Drive pilot, which was similar to the closed ending he shot for Twin Peaks back in 1989. In that case, it was the Red Room sequence, which doesn't really close anything. It's just sort of a strange, non-sequitur, surreal ending. And he actually did something similar with Mulholland Drive. He sent the two characters to a club where they see a strange lip-sync performance and there's like a seizure and somebody collapses. I haven't seen the actual pilot footage myself. I've just read about what's in it. So I'm not exactly sure which parts they added later. I think they added the blue box later, but I'm not sure. Just want to update here that I did actually end up watching the Twin Peaks pilot version as it was uh, intended for ABC. I discussed it on an episode of Twin Peaks Unwrapped, so I'll link that below. You can hear my full thoughts on it. Um, that was a few years ago, and now I still don't remember if the blue box is in, although I'm pretty sure it's not. I, th I think they end before that. But uh, you can check out that episode, and we'll discuss that in depth. So uh, look in the show notes. So at any rate, um, the Silencio footage was shot just as that sort of non-sequitur closed ending, and just like the Red Room, it was so cool that they wanted to find it, give give it a place in the uh, in the work. Although in this case, since the pilot was not picked up, it became part of a film instead of part of a series. So about a year later, Lynch received uh, after ABC decided not to air it. Lynch received further funding from a French production company to complete it as an actual feature film, and he needed an idea to do so. And that's when he meditated and came up with that final forty five minutes or so. Um, there's a few things scattered throughout the previous two-thirds of the movie that weren't in the pilot. The point is he added this final third of the movie, which many people interpret as the character waking up from a dream and discovering who she really is. And of course, Lynch has never directly confirmed this, and some people really don't like that reading. The relationship to Twin Peaks is already really complicated and interesting because you have two materials that began as a TV show or a TV pilot and then went in different directions. And with Twin Peaks, you still kind of have a similar structure. If you look at that original cycle from the early 90s as a whole, almost as if it was like a 30-hour film instead of, uh, you know, a, a episodic TV show followed by a feature film. The relationship between the series and Firewalk With Me, and particularly the pilot and Firewalk With Me, is very similar to the relationship between the first two-thirds of Mulholland Drive and the last third of Mulholland Drive. In both cases, you have this sort of mysterious universe being explored, very open, full of possibilities, a bright-eyed character guiding you through, and this mysterious figure, um, dead in the case of Twin Peaks, and just suffering from amnesia in Mulholland Drive, who's full of mystery, and you want to find out who she is and everything like that. And then in Firewalk With Me, similarly to Mulholland Drive, you suddenly dive into the consciousness of a character and... It becomes a much darker, more personal story, and much more psychologically rooted. That's the part that interests me the most. In both cases, you have these mysterious objects which are very ominous and fill you with a sense of almost inexplicable psychic dread. You know, for example, the fan in the Twin Peaks pilot and this strange, sleek blue key in Mulholland Drive that they find in the purse with all the money in the box and every or they find the box later but the the blue key and then in the latter part of these narratives in firewalk with me and in the last third of Mulholland drive suddenly these are rooted in very mundane facts but at the same time um so for for example the ceiling fan it's something that leland turns on when he's going to abuse laura he turns it on and sort of blocks out the sound 
And in Mulholland Drive, you see the blue key that the hitman gives to shows to uh, Diane and says, you'll get this when I'm done with the job, meaning when he kills her lover, who, of course, in the in the I'm assuming everyone listening to this has seen Mulholland Drive or else you're going to be totally lost. Her lover in in this last third of the film is the character who is or the actress, at least, who is the amnesiac in the first part of it. So in both cases, you're sort of rooting it in something almost like uh, very down to earth and kind of gritty and. But it's powerful because you understand the emotional resonance of that. And so somehow it works in this kind of amazing dual way where you get to retain some of that dreamlike quality, but you also get a very grounded human aspect to it. Now, another interesting question about uh, Twin Peaks and Mulholland Drive is, what if Mulholland Drive had continued? What sort of show would it, would it have become? And uh, Daniel, who's a, a Twin Peaks commentator... Daniel Smith, he he has a lot of interesting observations about um, Lynch's work. And one of the things he noted was if Mulholland Drive had continued and other writers and directors had been brought on, there's a good chance that another a sort of mythology would have developed around its mysterious figures as well. Um, the people like Mr. Rock, the disabled man who's sitting in the chair, played by Michael J. Anderson, or the creature behind the diner, or the cowboy who pops up and delivers ominous messages, that these figures may have been sort of codified the same way that Bob and Mike and the little man were, or at least they tried to codify them, and put into this lodge mythology that maybe something similar would have developed. And that's an interesting thought and observation, because when we watch Mulholland Drive now, I think there's a tendency to see it as more pure surrealism, or if you take the dream reading as the psychological manifestation of Diane's trauma and all of this stuff. And with Twin Peaks, figures like Bob pop up and they seem to be more psychic trauma totems or something like rather than a character with a, a mythology that's going to become a evil spirit or something. And then that does develop over time because they need a way to interact with this material on a um, continuing basis, especially on a show that Lynch was intermittently involved with. So would something similar have happened to Mulholland Drive or would Lynch have maintained sort of former control and left it more ambiguous? That's always been open to question. What's interesting is that now the third season of Twin Peaks complicates both of those questions, both what would Mulholland Drive have been like if it continued and also what is the relationship between Mulholland Drive and Twin Peaks? And there is a very strong relationship between the new material on Twin Peaks and Mulholland Drive, just all over the place. But it's often a very different relationship than the film had with Twin Peaks previously. So to start off with, on the most obvious level, there's just a ton of iconography in the uh, new series of Twin Peaks, and also a lot of just actors who are in Mulholland Drive. So for the iconography, uh, for one thing, you have the setting in Las Vegas, which is somewhat similar to Hollywood and this sort of fantastical made-up place that these characters are are going through. And this stranger who doesn't quite seem to remember who they are or where they are, uh, in this case, Dougie, in the other case, Rita. And they're wandering around, helped by, you know, Naomi Watts in very similar sweaters and outfits that she wore in Mulholland Drive. Also, you know, throughout the, the return, you have, um, and I'm going to use the return in season three interchangeably, sorry. Hopefully that doesn't bother anyone. Uh, but you have Hitman, you have the Woodsman character who resembles more than the Woodsman in Firewalk With Me, where he's supposedly descended from. He really resembles the creature behind the diner, um, or I should say they, because there's several of them. And there's a particularly a heavy one with a heavy bearded one who really kind of reminds you of that creature behind the diner. And then in connections to the older show, 
Mulholland Drive, you did have Michael J. Anderson as Mr. Roke um, sitting in that, that chair. And uh, I think it was like a red curtain. I think there were curtains in the room. I don't know if they were red, but obviously that's similar to Michael J. Anderson playing the little man in the old show. And some of these connections were pointed out to me by David when he recommended this topic. Just to go down the list of actors, I mean, we've got Naomi Watts, Brent Briscoe, Rebecca Del Rio, Robert Forster, Patrick Fischler, Scott Coffey, all these people who were in Mulholland Drive and now and weren't in the original Twin Peaks, and now they're showing up in the new Twin Peaks. A couple actors I'm going to point out just to be a stickler that are not in Mulholland Drive, but people keep saying are Cheryl Lee and Phoebe Augustine. There are a couple actors who look um somewhat like them and they're in the silencio scene and so people have been excited oh my god lynch brought laura and and renette into uh maholland drive if you look closely at the actors it's definitely not the same actor especially if you look at photos of those actors at that time they look similar enough that maybe lynch intended for them to remind us of those characters which would be pretty cool but like it's definitely not the actors and i also should mention there's a weird interrelationship between Lost and uh, Twin Peaks season three, because I remember Lost brought in a few characters who had been, or a few actors who had been in Mulholland Drive and uh, Patrick Fischler for one. And I think uh, Mark Pellegrino is another one. And so there was this, like, they'd show up and you're like, oh, they carry that resonance from like the diner scene or the Hitman scene into, into Lost. They're kind of giving it some Lynch cachet. And then Lynch brings Fischler back, not Pellegrino, but then he also adds Jeremy Davies, who was a character who was an actor on Lost that hadn't been in a Lynch film before. So I thought that was cool. I don't know that it means anything. One other connection to a more contemporary show that I, I thought was kind of cool between Mulholland Drive uh, is The Leftovers, which is another Damon Lindelof show with uh, Justin Thoreau, who was in Mulholland Drive. And I've only seen one episode of The Leftovers ever. But it was like the most Lynchian one I could have seen because it had Justin Thoreau and specifically the most Mulholland Drive one I could have seen because his character was wandering through this hotel that he he didn't know how he got there or who he was supposed to be and he was supposed to kill somebody and that just had and somebody was coming to deliver him messages. So I was just laughing. I'm like, wow, OK, they watched Mulholland Drive now beyond how the series kind of looks or the images and actors and familiar faces it touches upon, there's also some strong structural similarities between season three and Mulholland Drive. And that was something people started to notice right away. Uh, Actually, the night that the first two parts of The Return aired, I debated going on Twitter and tweeting out, I really enjoyed the new episode of Mulholland Drive because it, it really felt much more similar in feel and structure to uh, the first part of that film than it did to Twin Peaks in a lot of ways, because you're cutting between all these different characters. You don't really see the connection between them. You don't know if there's going to be a connection. And you're just starting with this sort of sprawling map of people and places, much more geographically widespread than Mulholland Drive, because that was all in Hollywood. And this is all over the US, New York, Las Vegas. Like, I just remember how many different places we saw some of which we never saw again in those first couple episodes. Now, another interesting thing about that structure, when I first saw Mulholland Drive, I didn't know that it had been a TV pilot. So it makes sense in retrospect to look and say, okay, well, of course, you're seeing this ensemble with all these different subplots that was going towards a series. And then he finds an interesting way to resolve it in a film. But I think at the time, I just saw it more as this LA ensemble piece. And there's really a lot of those, uh, most of which I've seen later, but I was familiar with them at the time. Uh, Grand Canyon, the Lawrence Kasdan film, uh, Shortcuts, the Robert Altman film, probably the most famous example of this based on the Raymond Carver stories, which were not all set in L.A. And he turned it into like 
an L.A. story, um, you know, with an earthquake at the end. And then Magnolia, the P.T. Anderson film, which is obviously heavily influenced by Robert Altman. All, all these films, and I think there's many more as well that just aren't coming to mind at the moment. There's almost this sort of genre of like L.A. films that trace all these different characters and different walks of life in the city and then bring them together. And other cities do it too, but there seems to be something about LA in particular, maybe the sprawl of it that lends itself to this form. So I think I thought that's what Mulholland Drive was doing at the time. And, and, and that's why it seemed like a film and not a TV show. So that's an interesting thing to consider. Now, back to the TV show thing though, as I watched this unfold in the first couple episodes of The Return, I wondered like, is Lynch going to coalesce the stuff or is he going to keep them separate? And in a way, I feel like this show did give us a vision of what Lynch might have done if he had continued Mulholland Drive. On the one hand, he does bring a lot of stuff together to a certain extent. You know, Duncan Todd, the strange man played by the guy who is killed by or terrified by the creature behind the diner. We learn that he's hired by Mr. C to kill various people and stuff like that. Whereas in the first episode, he's just this strange figure who shows up and we don't know what to make of him. Other characters are only one-offs. There's the guy with the walkie-talkie outside of Ruth Davenport's apartment. Never see him again or find out what he was on about. Uh, most infamously, Red, Shelley's boyfriend who does the magic trick with Richard. We're not introduced to him till several episodes later, but we expect him to become this important figure, and he never does. So obviously, Lynch, separate from being cut off from a TV show, he was interested in leaving things unsettled. And that shouldn't be too surprising given how ambiguous his films tend to be and how open-ended they are. Wild at Heart in particular gives a good precedent for this, where you have these strange characters who pop in for a scene and are never seen again. In some ways, Wild at Heart feels almost as much as Mulholland Drive, like an antecedent for, for season three. But there are a couple things I want to say about, about this phenomenon. Um, first of all, there's a fantastic article about Mulholland Drive, which I'll link in the description about frustrated seriality. It's by Jason Mattel. Uh, hopefully I'm pronouncing that correctly. And he posits that a lot of Mulholland Drive's power and its poignance draws from the sense of that, that we're entering a serialized story and then it's cut off at the knees. So it's interesting to see the return in that light where Lynch doesn't have to cut it off on the knees. He's given 18 hours to continue. And yet, in some ways, he does cut it off. And I wonder how much of that is what he would have done anyways with Mulholland Drive versus actually being something that comes out of the experience in Mulholland Drive. So in other words, the fact that uh, that and Twin Peaks and On the Air and Dune sequels and Firewalk With Me sequels and all these opportunities in his life where he wanted to create something ongoing were taken away from him. Now, when he finally has the chance to create a long form thing that can keep going, that suddenly he is interested in cutting things off, maybe because that's almost become a familiar pattern to him. I don't know. It's just something to think about. So when I wrote about the first episodes, I noted that Lynch's narratives tend to birth themselves in scattered chaos and then coalesce into a kind of mystical order. And I think that's interesting. He doesn't, you know, I think usually screenwriters are often advised, probably wisely, to give you this bold opening kickoff, and you can sprawl out from there. It's like the Big Bang theory, almost. Lynch does the reverse. He's almost, his films are almost reverse Big Bangs, where you start with all these scattered elements, and then they kind of start to draw together more and more. Not completely, and there were obviously a lot of loose ends at the end of season three, as we all well know. But nonetheless, many things do come together. And certainly the last hour of season three is very similar to Mulholland Drive in that suddenly we dispense with all other characters and subplots and we're just focused on this core narrative experience. Cooper is on screen for 
almost the entirety of that episode, which is unprecedented in Twin Peaks. Even in Firewalk With Me, when it's Laura's story, the first 40 minutes of it, she's not even in. So this is very unusual for, for Lynch to have a character who we're with almost the entire time. In fact, I think the only exception is when we actually see Carrie Page before he does which is an interesting exception, and we'll have to talk about that another time. That's very similar to the end of Mulholland Drive, where suddenly the Naomi Watts character, now renamed, similar to Richard and Linda, and Carrie Page for that matter, is suddenly on screen, like, nonstop. Oh, there is one other exception, sorry to rewind. When Cooper goes inside the motel, and Diane sits in the car, and she sees the doppelganger of herself come outside. That's the only other time. So both times we're sort of with these women when Cooper departs, and they seem confused and lost. There's something to talk about there for sure, which we'll get to a little bit in the differences between Mulholland Drive and and Twin Peaks, as well as the similarities. So part 18 of season three definitely goes in a very Mulholland Drive-esque direction. You have loss of identity, you have focusing on these two characters, suddenly you have somebody who seems to not be able to remember who they are, Um, although of course that's more the, the first two-thirds of Mulholland Drive than the last third. There's a coldness to it as well that's fascinating, which is very similar to the first part of When Diane Awakes, when she's just lumbering around the kitchen in her bathrobe making coffee, and then things start to get dreamy and weird again, but in a more rooted down-to-earth way, where she's having flashbacks and maybe visions of the people climbing under her door. But that first, like, five or ten minutes... Um, is very cold and austere, especially compared to what came before. And you definitely see that in season three. And also this notion of a character we've come to know as one person suddenly being inexplicably different. You know, we've met the doppelganger. We've seen that sort of side of Cooper detached from him. But this quote-unquote Richard version of Cooper is very kind of sour and quiet. Um, He never really feels like the Cooper we knew before. And that's very similar to how Diane appears in Betty's Stead in Mulholland Drive. So that's all pretty interesting. And of course, there's the question of what, what's the significance or the resonance of it? You know, to put it bluntly, what does this all mean? And uh, it makes me think to an extent of Martha Nockamson's reading of Mulholland Drive. She's a great Lynch scholar who really doesn't like the dream reading and kind of dismisses it. Um, I, as I've said, I can't. I, to me, it's, it's too central to what the film does. But I'm intrigued by her alternate take, which is that it's not that this last third is reality swimming in on the illusion of the first part of Mulholland Drive. It's that Betty made certain mistakes, which led her in a direction that's actually more closed off and claustrophobic in a lot of ways. And she's lost the possibility and the magic that was possible as Betty versus Diane. And you can definitely see that in this ending of season three as well, where we've lost that. And you see it actually to a certain extent throughout season three. And certainly it was commented upon in Firewalk with me versus the TV show where you kind of lose this magical ethereal quality and it's replaced with something more cold. And especially in part 18, you know, cause there's still a lot of fun and um, lightheartedness in the return, but then part 18 comes along and, and you just have this almost dead, dead world. And so the question is, oh, is this like the real thing? And we're, we're away from that kind of childish fantasy. Or is it saying something else? And of course, it's kind of saying both, I'm sure, in, in whatever way you want to grapple with it. Is it saying, no, like he's lost the real in a way because he's lost the imagination and the intuition. And uh, I think something that uh, Martha Nockhamson fo- focuses on a lot and she uses it as an analysis of Cooper's fall in season two, 
when he goes into the Red Room to follow Annie, there's this distrust of willpower, which seems to be a sort of a Lynchian motif in favor of being more open to the universe and the energies therein. Uh, she writes a lot about uh, quantum physics and how that how those concepts relate to Lynch's work. I'm going to now go through some of my notes. This may be a little more rambling, this part of the conversation. Uh, hopefully the other part seemed a little more uh, structured. I want to talk about uh, different par- different overlaps between the two works, and there's just so many that I think it makes sense to go through it like this. Another aspect that's similar, and this is interesting given how Mulholland Drive began, is the Audrey storyline in season three. It's almost like now they are inserting Audrey into Mulholland Drive after all. And this is interesting too, because similar to how Mulholland Drive was created, uh, especially that last third of the movie, uh, the Cheryl and Finn scenes were supposed to be something different. She was supposed to be, basically, it's pretty clear at this point, I don't think I even need to offer the disclaimers because of things Mark Frost and Sherilyn Finn have said. It's pretty clear she was supposed to be Sylvia's character and get, like, assaulted by her own son and beaten up. And uh, apparently Sherilyn Finn read this script and just burst into tears and called Lynch and pleaded or argued with him and didn't want to do it that way. And so there was these months of tension between her and the production. When was she going to come on? What was she going to do? And that was actually documented at the time, although, of course, nobody could tell, say, what it was about. And so Lynch scripted these scenes with Charlie, the character who's her husband, and they were made up after the fact while they were already shooting. And given this sort of dreamy, otherworldly feel, almost as an explanation or a compliment to to explain how they were there, why they were there. So that's a strong similarity. And there's also sort of a similar feel. I mean, you have Audrey, she's in some ways, she's a bit like Betty trying to figure things out, but she's also a bit like Rita as this character who seems a bit lost in her identity and somebody else with a sort of a more forceful personality is is in the room with her, talking her through it, maybe vaguely threatening her. I mean, once we see the end of Mulholland Drive, we can go back and look at those Betty-Rita scenes and see something more ominous there you have audrey sitting in the room trying to figure out who she is what she is trying to kind of get out of there and then they end up going out and she's just like at silencio she's swayed by this music and then she wakes up there's an interesting kind of parallel going on there we also have carrie page stepping in in seemingly in laura palmer's place Uh, first of all you have cooper looking at the name tag and asking about her which is similar to betty looking at the waitress's name tag in her diner and and seeing diane's name and all of that and you also have her living in this dumpy place i mean in her case she's literally got a dead man lying in there with his gut burst open In, in both cases you have this character haunted by a death that you maybe have some sense they're responsible for maybe justly or or not just milling about the house so really in a lot of ways carrie is the strongest parallel to the diane selwyn reverse that you see in Mulholland Drive. One of the differences between season three and Mulholland Drive, probably in some ways the starkest, and this is a difference between season three and really all of Lynch's quote-unquote late work. Now it's more like his middle work, but the stuff from Firewalk With Me through Inland Empire was very centered on a female protagonist and often particularly, particularly in Lynch's world where there's a very gendered psychology going on often in terms of who experiences what traumas and who's responsible for them and things like that and how they react to them. So season three is a much more masculine show. I mean, it makes sense. It's built around Cooper, but you know, there was a lot of uh, some fairly reasonable, I think, accusations of sexism throughout. Overall, the significant thing that I noticed is you really don't see that much from a female character's perspective. There isn't a lot of that going on. And there actually was, even in the older show, in the original Twin Peaks, 
partly because it was part of the soap opera format, which had a very female audience and many story conventions that were sort of built around um, particularly problems that women would face and things like that. In season three, you have Cooper, obviously, is the protagonist in various capacities. And then you have other figures. You have the sheriff's department, which other than Lucy is mostly male. And you have the FBI, where you have Krista Bell. But of course, many people felt Tammy Preston was not handled with necessarily the most sensitive eyes or whatever. So you have all these male-dominated worlds that are telling the story of Twin Peaks. And I think the biggest exception to that that kind of breaks through and at times creates a parallel to Mulholland Drive and obviously Inland Empire is Diane with Laura Dern giving a magnificent performance and some really powerful scenes that almost comment upon how male-dominated the show is. So that's something interesting to consider too, and I think that's certainly going to be a big part of my analysis in the Journey Through Twin Peaks series. It's just, in some ways, the show feels like a throwback to earlier Lynch films where they were more male-dominated, but in other ways it feels very conscious of the fact that it's deviating from his other later work and kind of opening up those moments where you see what the film is missing. I think also there's a, there's a pretty sharp stylistic distinction between Mulholland Drive and uh, season three. Season three is in a racer head through Dune. And one aspect of Lynch's late work that I brought up a lot and I'm sure will continue to is uh, his collaboration with Mary Sweeney, who was who edited all of those Um, films and her first thing she edited for him was episode 14 of uh, the original Twin Peaks when the killer is revealed and she's talked about how cutting fluidly between the roadhouse and the killing and and also just within the killing between Bob and Leland how this sort of established a connection between her and Lynch this finding this rhythm together and you can really see that in all the work they do it's very impressionistic and beautiful sad glamorous in this way whereas the return is which was with Dwayne Dunham who did do Wild at Heart which is a more impressionistic Lynch film but a lot of his other stuff for both for Twin Peaks and Blue Velvet has a little different feel to it so that's an interesting contrast between the works and it is worth noting that the only part of Twin Peaks Mary Sweeney edited were Firewalk With Me and uh, episode 14, both of which are very centered on Lara's trauma, but also have that style of that dreamlike, but very vivid and lucid feeling to them. They're very emotional works. And I think you see a lot of that, especially in the last third of Mulholland Drive, it really has that feel. And that's something you don't get that much of in The Return. I think the only sequence in The Return, and it's done in a different way, that to me, has that kind of visceral, edgy energy is uh, part three when he goes, when Cooper goes into the purple room, meets NATO, and you're jagging back and forth. You almost feel like a little disoriented watching it. Other than that, I think it's it's a different feel to the series, which is, I definitely have a personal love for that 90s films and all of that, and a connection to that style, but I, I respect what he's doing here too, and I often enjoy it a great deal as well, but it is interesting pointing that out. There is one sequence, it's not so much to do with cutting, although I suppose lack of cutting. But there is one sequence in The Return which did feel very much in this overwhelming romantic spirit of Mulholland Drive. And that's when we first meet Becky and she's taking the, the, the drugs and then she leans her head back in the car and it plays I Love How You Love Me, which feels so much like the Every Little Star and uh, I think is it 15 Reasons Why I Love You, the songs that they sing in the audition in uh, or in the, the grand soundstage casting call for Mahal, in Mulholland Drive. That's one other section that I think does kind of connect with that feeling. 
uh, interestingly enough. You know, you could go on endlessly about all the connections between these works. Before we get to the biggest piece of feedback, uh, here's one that's also fairly long for feedback. It runs about three minutes where I uh, hear back from David who suggested this topic and then also share my own responses to that piece of feedback. So here's what he said. One thing I'm still thinking about is whether common elements like the curtained red gray room and the woodsman are merely surface level similarities, an artist employing familiar imagery to different ends, or does the link run deeper? For example, the red to the room that um, Mr. Roke is in at Mulholland Drive, I think. In both works, it's a temporarily deranged locus of spiritual power bounded by solid yet permeable energy fields, curtains or glass, inhabited by uncanny beings who scheme against ordinary people. In fact, Lynch has gone so far as to cast the same actor as the central figure in each. And the woodsmen, they seem in some ways to facilitate passage between the lodge and the real worlds. They're often seen swarming around lodge entry points, and when Bob Orb is exposed, they perform some kind of protective or restorative ritual. In M.D., Dan implies that the creature behind the diner is controlling his dream, or otherwise creating a deeply disturbing, uncanny state. It's not clear exactly what it's doing, but it has something to do with Dan's terror that his dream may not be self-contained. Coupled with Dan's hypnotic focus as he tells his story, we as the audience begin to question whether we are in a dream or a reality, and what is the difference in any case. I want us to carefully stop short of suggesting a unified Lynch fictional universe, but at the same time, each of these stories are self-disrupting, containing multiple realities and multiple versions of the same characters, they contain spaces and scenes which threaten to pierce the narrative fabric itself. In M.D., the dream conceit. In T.P., Audrey's story, which her husband cryptically threatens to end. The roadhouse is a possibly liminal space for transitory spirits, and most obviously the events of Part 18. All this morphing within each fiction tempts me to view their stories as permutations of each other. That is, just as Cooper becomes Richard, the arm becomes Mr. Roke. This could be pretty self-indulgent or fanish, but I think the real question is, do these elements serve similar symbolic narrative functions in each fictional universe? And as such, do they enrich each other? Does our knowledge of the woodsman help us understand the creature behind the diner? Or do the commonalities not speak between fictions, but merely tell us about the artist who created both? So that's a great piece of feedback. And for me, I'd love to hear what other people think of that. Hopefully we can almost kind of get a conversation going through the feedback. So I don't know if I'd be comfortable applying Lodge mythology to Mulholland Drive, but in a way, I have mixed feelings about a Lodge mythology in Twin Peaks. I think to a certain extent, some of the things that the characters say and some of the ways that uh, these relationships are defined, especially in the second season, but even to a certain extent in the third season, um, are sometimes, I like to see that as the characters' visions of that, if that makes sense, rather than being a universe with rules unto itself. So for example, when they talk about the Black Lodge versus the White Lodge and how you need to enter it and things like that, I see that as the legends arising from people's experience with these uncanny zones. And then how do they describe them? And that's literally true in the case of these works because, as well, at least with Twin Peaks, because you had other writers coming in trying to codify what Lynch had created. So I think with Mulholland Drive, it has that same potential because it comes from the same creator, but it doesn't quite get codified in the same way because other people weren't brought in to do that. And now I have some feedback to share from one of my listeners, Noel, who had a lot to say. This is a 10-minute section where not just the, her feedback, but also my responses to it. Essays she shared, which I'll link in the show notes about Twin Peaks and about Mulholland Drive. 
Noel wrote, Hey Joel, my boyfriend and I are big fans of your Twin Peaks video series on YouTube, and I'm excited to listen to your Return Rewatch podcast episodes. I'm planning to listen to all of them when I decide to rewatch The Return myself, probably in the fall when the atmospherics are just right. I know you encourage your listeners to share thoughts, theories, so here it goes. I recently thought about The Return through the lens that I now look at Mulholland Drive. I once stumbled upon a website, linked below, dedicated to Mulholland theories, and after reading through all of it, I rewatched Mulholland Drive and everything came together for me on a much deeper level than it did on my first viewing of it. After watching many of his films, I think that Lynch is primarily interested in exploring and filming the subconscious mind, specifically the traumatized subconscious mind. Lynch continuously seems largely interested in deeply exploring the psyche of both victims of trauma, e.g. Laura, and perpetrators of abuse, e.g. Leland Bob, Frank Booth in Blue Velvet, etc. I even get the sense, though never stated outright, that many of the abusers and perpetrators in Lynch films have often been victims of some type of severe trauma at some point in earlier life themselves. I think Leland was possibly abused as a boy. I'm of the opinion that Leland's story, told in the sheriff's station about Pearl Lakes, was a reference to sexual abuse as a child. My boyfriend and I also have a theory that perhaps Frank Booth was either abused and or abandoned by his parents as a child. This doesn't excuse any of these characters' evils, but it does provide a depth to their character in a way other films and shows often fail to differ. And then she talked about the return for a little bit. I'm going to skip over that part, get to more of the Mulholland Drive discussion here. So cutting into the feedback a little bit. You can check out the Patreon episode. It'll be linked below if you want to hear all the feedback and all the other stuff that got discussed there. In the Mulholland Drive uh, link that she sent, there's a lot of theories about this idea that Diane was sexually abused as a child and Mulholland Drive is like her her dream. It's not just like that there was this actress Camilla who was cruel to her and she wants revenge. It's actually the most underlying phenomenon is that she was abused and all of this is is a reflection and a refraction of that. So sometimes when the, the theories are like one-to-one -one literal, it doesn't quite work as well for me. Like they say, okay, well, money exchanged hands. So somebody bribed the aunt to not know that the grandfather had abused Diane. So that's why we see money exchanging hands and the aunt comes into the room and doesn't see what's happening in the bedroom. And it's like a little too on the nose, the point where it's like they came up with their theory and then they backwards tried to rationalize and squeeze everything you see in to fit that theory. Now, that said, I think these kind of readings are, are facilitated to a certain extent by Mulholland Drive because it is a little more on the nose than Lynch films usually are. On one level, um, at least, you know, there is a pretty clean correspondence between things that happen in the last third of the film and how they're in the dream and why they're featured the way they are that is more direct than Lynch, I think, certainly than, than he liked to be at a later point. The Inland Empire, he kind of avoids anything that could be read as neatly as like, well, they try to shoot uh, the actress in the limo right at the spot where uh, Diane gets out of the car because a physical assassination is an emotional assassination. You know, like that's something the film does itself. I don't think it's not reading too much into it, especially because one of Lynch's clues was, you know, look at the site of the accident. What does an accident mean, et cetera, et cetera. So the film itself does encourage this type of, of more direct literal reading where there's something that happened and what you're seeing is a reflection of that concrete thing. And there's something resonant to that as well in a lot of ways, like the idea of these symbols that are taking a profound but mundane event, like something that just happens in the ordinary world with ordinary objects and mythologizing them, like this little blue key that just says, hey, we, we killed somebody for you, now becomes this 
like sleek, uncanny object in her dream that opens a horrible secret. I love the fact that Mulholland Drive does that. Even if you just take it uh, without getting into these questions of does Diane have a further history, just the question of like her having this affair and then trying to kill the other actress, taking that run-of-the-mill melodrama story and turning it into this grand epic mythology where all the little psychological elements are sort of affixed to these physical objects and transform them into something else. That's really cool. And so I kind of liked reading some of these theories where they do similar things with, with stuff like that. Like, for example, they talk about the singer in the Silencio, she collapses on the stage and uh, on the on the little rug, like right in the spot where when the aunt comes in and looks around the room, she's like looking at the rug where where Camilla and or, or I guess where Rita and Betty just disappeared from. And it's like, did something happen there? Did somebody see something there? And a cowboy coming in to, to, to speak to her time to wake up little girl, the idea that this is like a memory of her grandfather coming into the room and seeing her there. Sometimes these kind of literal one to one connections, I think, can have a. A resonance but there has to like flow from the material itself in the film it can't just it can't take the material and try to force it back in like the for example so like the jewelry scene people are trying to make that into something where he pours the paint over the jewelry they're trying to make that into something that reflects diane's trauma but to me it's just the tone is so different that at that point it becomes like an academic connection even if it's a real connection it's like purely intellectual um, and that can work sometimes in its own way, but I think it's more powerful usually to have like an emotional resonance that then you figure out, oh, this is why it was, this is why the ceiling fan always felt creepy to me in Twin Peaks. It's because Leland would turn it on and it's like retroactively, it makes sense of something that was abstract. Well, that thing still retains its abstract emotional power. And this all reminds me of a article or actually a review of Firewalk With Me from 1992. It's one of the few positive reviews in the Buffalo News by Jeff Simon, and I cited it in my Gone Fishing uh, uh, roundup of media commentary. So I'll link it there because the actual article is behind a paywall that I can't access anymore, and you probably can't either. But the, the critic said, what Lynch has done in Twin Peaks the movie is to wrench father-daughter incest and child murder out of the hands of Oprah in the TV movie of the week and put it back into the incoherent horrors of the collective unconscious where it belongs. So that's a really interesting statement. I think, to be honest, I think there's value in both. I think there's value in sort of taking it out and putting it in the pop culture in an open way and talking about it as as Oprah or the or the even the TV movies that you know, were more matter of fact would do, but you also need to retain some sense of the actual overwhelming emotional trauma of it. And I think that's better conveyed often through a more mythological, diffuse, abstract approach that's like indirect and gets you there through sort of your subconscious than just explaining, you know, the the horrors of it and the trauma of it and what people have gone through recovering from it and everything in in a in a different more public, more... Martha Nockhamson talks about this in terms of the, the narratives of, like, the doctors who help their patients through their trauma. And uh, usually, in that case, it's not Oprah. It's, like, a male doctor. So there's a very different gender dynamic going there. But this doctor will help the patient through their trauma to the other side. And that's the narrative that is usually told about this this type of experience. And so for Lynch to take you directly into the consciousness of the victim as they're a victim without somebody to guide them through is a whole other experience that that really only art can do in a way and uh, also in these notes they talk about the scene the audition scene 
where they're playing a scene like my father will hear us and all of that and he's saying you're my father's best friend what are you doing you know the scene with uh, betty and uh I think Woody, the other actor, and they're they're like in each other's arms, and she turns the scene on its head and kind of takes power within it and everything. And I have heard this theory before of that Mulholland Drive is is about sexual abuse trauma in Diane's past, and I've heard that scene cited often as like a central piece of evidence, basically that that's what's going on here. I think it was with that in mind that I had audio clips from Mulholland Drive originally in that video that I was discussing about Lynch's first six films. I, I have audio clips from Inland Empire and Lost Highway in it, so I have the soundtracks of some of the later films featured within it, and I was going to use the scene where he says, uh, okay, are we ready? And then he says, Bob, which is like the Twin Peaks name, obviously. And then they said, you know, my, my father will find out about this and stuff like that, and just mixing those audio clips in with footage from... Uh, uh, firewalk with me and it didn't fit in at the time i had to cut it but but later that year or a year later when i was doing the the last videos for journey through twin peaks and i talked about lynch's later work i was able to find a way to do that where i intersperse the audio from Mulholland drive uh, but from that particular scene with footage of lost highway and other uh, inland empire where i'm talking about how lynch will show the father or the husband to be more responsible for the abuse of the characters that he's showing than some distant you know monstrous figure as it was more in his earlier films also uh they talk about one of the most powerful notes in this section talks about uh betty's uh, reaction to the silencio show how she has like a seizure like a traumatic seizure that's triggered by the by what she's seeing and experiencing on that stage in the club and that reminds me of something i saw years ago when i was in las vegas um with friends um in like my early 20s we went to a hypnotist act and you know most of it was pretty goofy and making people do all this funny stuff and there was one guy on stage who just once he was hypnotized he started getting really intense and he was kind of curling up his fists and and breathing heavily and the hypnotist uh kind of woke him up and sent him back to his seat said it's it's okay just you can sit down you know it's all right so the guy went back to his seat and they continued with the act and, you know, all the funny stuff. And then suddenly, like, people in the audience started, like, something's wrong. They're looking. And the guy was sitting there with his date. And he had gone back into a kind of a state. And he was, like, hyperventilating and, like, crying and and curling up. And the hypnotist just went down and very quietly put him back to sleep and went on. And the guy calmed down and literally fell asleep and told the girlfriend, he'll be okay, he'll come out of it, but this is uh, something or other. And went back on stage and kept it, you know, with the hypnotist act or whatever. And I think uh, at some point the guy woke up and he left or they just left at the end of the show. He woke him up and everything and maybe talked to him a little, said, I, I think he went somewhere or something. So I was asking him after the show, I was like, oh, what happened there? Does that happen often? He said, no, 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 not too often. But I think uh, I think that guy had some trauma or something. Something, something was awakened uh, by the hypnotism. Something else that these uh, notes on Mulholland Drive revealed to me that somehow I'd never heard before was that uh, Rita Hayworth was actually a victim of incest as well. And she was, her and her father were like dancers. They would go on tour and he was abusing her that that whole time as she was like in her early teens or preteens. And uh, Orson Welles, I guess, told one of her biographers about this and she researched her more and wrote about her biography. So I'll link an article about that below, but that was fascinating because uh, also of course Rita Hayworth 
died of Alzheimer's and she had it for years, um, seven years, she was diagnosed with it seven years before she died. And this biographer believes she was manifesting symptoms of it as early as her forties. I don't know if I don't, I'm, you know, I don't know the medical facts of that, if that's possible, but that's decades of, of that kind of forgetting and confusion and memory loss, which is of course what Rita in Mulholland Drive experiences. And she takes her name directly from Rita Hayworth on the poster of Gilda that she sees in the mirror. So that's really something right there, you know, to the, to whatever extent Lynch uses these ideas and these references to Hollywood movie history with full consciousness of what he's doing, or if it's just sort of a offhand thing, I don't know, but that's, that's quite a compelling link right there. Now, finally, one more section to this podcast. I had a Twin Peaks Reflection series on my Patreon podcast where I would compare a storyline from the original series, the original 30 episodes, seasons one and two, and uh, talk about it in conjunction with either one particular episode of the third season or a David Lynch film or one of Mark Frost's books or actually any of the spinoff books like The Secret Diary or or um, My Life, My Tapes, The Cooper autobiography. So another piece of Twin Peaks or Lynch media that I'd compare to a storyline from the original series. And in this case, I took the mystery box storyline from late season two and compared it to Mulholland Drive. So we'll hear a little bit about that before we go out for this episode. And as for the storyline, which actually brings the characters to that Twin Peaks savings and loan, we have the mystery box. This is the last storyline from just the series. The last one I discuss will have some relation to Firewalk with me. So this is the last one just from the series that I'm going to discuss as part of Twin Peaks Reflections. And the reason, of course, is episode 29 is where this episode comes to its climax. Very explosive, literally explosive climax uh, to something that's been going on for several episodes. So a quick summary of this story is, given a puzzling gift by the departed nemesis Eckhart, the Packards are distracted by boxes within boxes until they unlock the final secret a bomb which blows a couple of them to smithereens. The characters involved with this are Catherine Martell, Thomas Eckhart, Jones, Harry Truman, Pete Martell, Andrew Packard, Del Mibler, Audrey Horn, and I suppose indirectly Ben Horn, since he's the reason that she's at that bank to uh, experience the effects of the, uh, the mystery box bomb. And it's all loosely related to Josie Packard in that that's why Eckhart wants to get revenge on his enemies after his death. And he set this whole thing up. It's never clear when he could have done this because he didn't even know Andrew was still alive until they met in the elevator on his way to see Josie where he was killed. Back in episode 23, uh, that's sort of a hole in the plot, I guess. But uh, the episode that actually introduces this storyline officially is the following one, episode 24, where Joan shows up, gives Catherine this box, and then it's opened. Uh, boxes and boxes within it are opened, I think, I want to say four times. So let's see. First of all, uh, the, the Pete is able to, uh, you know, something, I think Pete drops it. And it slides open, and then it has they have the box with the symbols on it. Andrew is able to figure out the code to get that open. And then he smashes another box with the rolling pin that was inside of that one. And then they have the little metal box that uh, he's able to shoot the holes in, and they're able to extract a key, which then leads them to the safety deposit box where they open it. And boom, there it is, a bomb with a note on it that says... 
something like Got You, Andrew from Eckhart. So we know that this is directly intended for Andrew, a guy he supposedly didn't even know was alive until, uh, you know, hours before he died. So go figure. <laughs> it's uh, one of those Twin Peaks conceits. And it, the, the whole thing is like a... It's like a MacGuffin that announces itself as a MacGuffin. So Alfred Hitchcock, I believe, coined that term or, you know, popularized it anyway, where it's this idea of a plot device that is just there to move the plot along and get to the stuff that's really important thematically or otherwise that kind of carries the characters through. And this is literally that. It's just like, hey, a, a mystery box. Who knows what's inside? And this is where we're now going to draw a connection, a kind of bemusing connection, but also a very obvious one to... uh you know, I always do to another part of Twin Peaks, either in the season three or a spinoff or a David Lynch film. And in this case, it's got to be the David Lynch film, Mulholland Drive. Mulholland Drive is probably at this point the most famous example of a literal mystery box in cinema. Uh, there is a character who has amnesia. Uh, they know her as uh, Rita and her and Betty, who are sort of partnering in this, played by Naomi Watts and Laura Elena Herring. Uh, they're trying to figure out what happened to her, and they open up her purse, and there's all these big bundles of cash, um, just, you know, endless uh, streams of it there, and they're, they're pulling it out of the purse, and then finally they pull out this strange, uh, now I'm trying to remember, is it the key first or is it the box? Actually, I had to pause for a second and remind myself, it's the key that comes out first, this smooth blue almost otherworldly key that uh, Rita pulls from her purse after all of this money. And what does this key open? They don't know. So they put it away. And then later in the part of the film that Lynch shot uh, long after the pilot was abandoned and he was turning it into a feature film, they're at the Club Silencio. And uh, I believe this part, I know part of the Club Silencio uh, footage was shot for like an alternate ending type thing before it was going to be a film. But I think the part where she she pulls a box out of her uh, purse, I believe that was shot for the film. And then they go back, they open the box with the key, and that's where everything in the movie changes. Now, even just going back to Google and remind myself of this, pulled up new amazing things about Mulholland Drive that I never noticed. So, you know, there's uh, this is worth a discussion in and of itself. But this idea that people have of like sort of, no, you can't make any sense of it. And Lynch's clues are just tongue-in-cheek, and it's not supposed to make sense. It's... You know, no, he there there are connections that are that he put in there that I think work as intuitive kind of dream connections. But something I had never noticed before is that out the window of when um, Betty asks the hitman. So I guess to you know set this up for those of you who need a refresher, uh, in that second that last act of the movie where the characters' names are switched and everybody seems to be different, we get the idea that. Um, this this real this person still played by Naomi Watts, whose um, name is Diane, that she sort of dreamed or fantasized this whole situation to kind of rationalize the fact that she killed an ex-lover. She hired a hitman to kill the ex-lover, and he gives her a blue key, not this gorgeous, scary, spooky, uh, otherworldly key that that uh, Rita pulls out in the earlier sequence, but just a normal key that's been colored blue. And she says, what does it open? And he laughs. It's like an absurd question. The key is just supposed to be a signifier that 
uh, he's you know killed. The implication is it's the signifier that he's killed uh, Camilla, who is like Rita's identity in this other uh, reality or waking life or whatever you want to think of it as. So anyways, as I was Googling this, this image popped up. Uh, from the MulholandDrive.net, which sort of the notorious, like uh, all the the theories are are there and have been, uh, you know, for decades now, uh, where they gather all these kind of thoughts about it. And uh, one of the one of the observations is that behind him in the window is a blue box, and it's literally a dumpster. And of course, uh, the creature is found. the The creature in the uh, in Mulholland Drive who kind of stands in for diane's self-loathing and hatred and guilt uh is hiding behind a dumpster and i don't know that that particular dumpster is blue but the fact that he there's a blue you know a blue dumpster out the window behind this guy is uh it could that actually i believe could be an accident but it's one of those lynchian accidents like bob popping up in the mirror that is uh just like perfect like it, it almost is it almost makes it better that it would be uh, an accident so anyways uh that's the Mulholland drive uh box and that has a very significant emotional meaning whatever you know you you try to however you try to rationalize it in the the film itself its clear meaning is just the sort of guilt and uh this darker reality that betty turn to Diane is kind of sucked into. And in Twin Peaks, the show, I think it's much more of an intellectual concept. It's the idea of this sort of plot device that carries you along. And if you go too far and you open it and you solve the mystery, boom, you blow yourself up, which obviously comes directly out of uh, Twin Peaks experience with the Laura Palmer mystery as a plot device that they then had to resolve and the show kind of fell apart after that. So, uh, I don't know to what extent it's a super meta uh, concept that they're that they're going with there, but it, it certainly works that way. Even if they just said, hey, mystery box, we need a mystery, put it in, and didn't think that much about the implications. I think the fact that Lynch shoots the finale where the box blows everybody up uh, gives it some extra weight there. And that's it. Thanks for listening. This has been a grand kickoff to the series for the next three months, and I'm calling that the Lynchverse. We're going to continue with some Lynch films after this and then in the next season, but that one will have a different theme grouping them together, which I'll talk about when we get there. Uh, But for now, here's the next Lynch film we're going to discuss and compare to Twin Peaks. (laughs) 